Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we are going to talk and analyze, really, three public statements, one made by a seminary, one by a church, and a media source as the final one. And they're going to, these statements, we're going to see they continue to promote dangerous ideas about the gospel, about submission to authority and state authority over public health. So as we enter into the flu season this fall, many of you are aware, many people are wondering if mandates are going to return. And really, unless these underlying lies and assumptions are confronted, the reality is they very well may. And if they do, we believe there's going to be dire consequences. So Aaron, the first document we're going to look at, uh, just this October, Toronto Baptist Seminary distributed a letter that really you could say is quite inflammatory. Uh, and it presents a view of the gospel that may be quite concerning. And so we wanted to address that and uh, I'll let you take it away. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Um, I I want to be measured and careful with my words. I might even speak a little bit slower than I normally do because I want to be careful and cautious and wise in how we unpack these things because people are involved in this and I don't have any place in my heart to try to hurt or inflame tensions. I really don't want to do that. I want to say to those who may be named in this podcast that my my intention is to deal with some substantive issues that I think are problematic. My intention is not to belittle you or uh, disrespect you. But when we make statements publicly, you know, we need to be accountable for those statements. Just like when I preach or I do this podcast, I need to be accountable for what I say because many people are listening. So yeah, there was a, a letter that was forwarded to me. Uh, it's called the Principal's Office Newsletter, uh, dated October 2022. And it's written by uh, a man by the name of Kirk Wellam, who's the principal at Toronto Baptist Seminary. And I wanted to dissect this letter a little bit not as sort of an attack piece upon that seminary, I wish them well, or that particular individual, but it is a bit of a portrait or a picture of a mindset that I think has to be corrected in modern day Christianity. I I believe I have met Mr. Wellam a couple of times. My impression of him is that he's a very kind, godly, thoughtful individual. But there's two things about this letter that I think are concerning. Number one, it's, it is written by a, the principal of a seminary, and what seminaries do is they, they train pastors. So the consequences of professors and seminary presidents' views are significant, often enduring for generations. I know I studied at six different seminaries and earned degrees from four of them, and those men continue to influence me in terms of the way I think and act and negotiate the challenges of ministry. So I, I think it's important for seminary professors and and um, principals to be very careful and measured in how they communicate. And there's two things I want to point out about this particular letter. One is an issue of tone or ad hominem. 
there's a, there's a lot of attack language in this letter, which I don't think is helpful. And then I also believe there's some theological concerns in this letter. So I'll start with the first, which is of less significance. If you are in ministry, there's going to be times when you're subject to a, a degree of uh, judgment, and that judgment may not always be fair. And it's easy to sort of focus on the tone or focus on the way it was delivered and sort of lose sight of the substantive issues. Mm -hmm. So I think the substantive issues are really more important. So this podcast isn't an attempt to defend myself or defend my other, my other others per se, but at the same time, there is some language here that Mr. Wellam probably needs to apologize for that's, that's not helpful. Uh, you know, we, we cannot judge other people's motives. We have to be careful not to judge motives. We want to be discerning as individuals, and if we discern that a person has improper motives, that may affect the way we respond to that person. But in a public letter or sermon or podcast, we have to be very careful about assuming or presuming that we can understand a person's motives or heart. And so I just want to skim through this letter really quick and point out some some language that probably isn't helpful. And in doing so, I'm, I'm certain that others could probably go through podcasts of mine or sermons or letters I've written and, and find uh, elements of uh, motive judging too that, that I need to apologize for. And I'd be happy to do that if, if those would be revealed to me. I'm not aware of it, but I'm, I'm certain knowing my human heart, there's probably some examples of that out there. But this one is, is especially concerning. So let me just point out a few. So in this letter, it's basically a, uh, a, a, a newsletter to the faculty and the student body, from what I understand. And it has been addressed in, a, in another letter written by the elders of um, Hill City Baptist Church in Peterborough. Very articulate letter. Thankful for that. But when, when we say things like, and I'll just quote, times like these provide opportunities for various sorts of troublemakers to blow their own horns. Or later in the uh, letter, it says, um, for righteousness sake, just finding my place here, rubs us the wrong way and strikes a blow to our inflated notions of self-importance. Activism makes us feel alive, and in such an atmosphere, it's easy to mistake a restless, anti-authoritarian spirit for the convicting, humbling, transforming work of the Spirit of God. There's various states, uh, places in this letter where language like that is used, which it is inflammatory. On the second page of a letter, it talks about, we must refuse to listen to every discernment blogger, frustrated writer with a Substack account, or self-congratulatory pastoral heroes who make documentaries hoping to secure their place in history. Well, we know who that's referring to, especially that latter statement. And it's, frankly, it's, it's inappropriate and it's unbecoming of a Christian leader to use that kind of inflammatory language. Now, I don't believe this is true of Mr. Wellam at all, but if I were to say, you know, there's a guy that runs Toronto Baptist Seminary, and aside from analyzing his beliefs, he's egotistical, he's an egomaniac, he's prideful, he's an angry man, 
He has an inflated sense of self. He's running his own frustrated Substack account. He loves to write letters to his constituency because it gives him an inflated sense of self-importance. It makes him feel alive. He has an anti-authoritarian spirit. Mm -hmm. He's a troublemaker who loves to blow his own horn, none of which I believe about him, none of which I believe. But if I were to say that, I think he would understand, and I hope he does listen to this podcast. I hope he would understand that that doesn't help what's going on. He talks about the division that's taken place in the Christian church, which is accurate. But presuming motives or um, attacking people ad hominem, like attacking their person, attacking their manhood, it just isn't helpful. It, it doesn't serve to advance the agenda. I can appreciate, you know, he's making various comments about his understanding of the gospel or eschatology or the Christianization of the world. I don't personally agree with his analysis, but that's where this conversation needs to go. Mm-hmm. Not, not into the weeds. And, you know, I would just in, encourage him or others that may be guilty of that, check your heart and ask yourself, are, are these uh, responses helpful? And I'm sure there are many offenses on both sides, and there are sides that have been taken. There's no question about that. Uh, you know, I would consider many of, these, many of these men my opponents. I'll just use that word. They would be my opponents in this cause. We need to try to keep our 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 debate substantive rather than presuming to know no motive. Mm-hmm. Now, let me just move in a different direction now um, and just talk about some of the things that concern me about the substance of his argumentation. So in the, in the third paragraph, he writes, in the midst of it, we must keep our eyes on Jesus and the task he's assigned to us. That task is simple and simultaneously difficult. Simple in the sense that we are clearly commanded to live by faith in Christ and bring our lives under his gracious authority. Simple does not mean easy, as every Christian knows from their own personal experience. And this is where difficulty uh, and its attendant dangers lie. Well, I uh, there's, there's nothing about that statement that concerns me. There's nothing in that statement that is false, but it's it's in the context of a letter, which is calling Christians, instead of pursuing uh, political solutions. So that, let me just read a few more statements to set the context. He talks about politics and politicians accomplishing very little in the big scheme of things, and they will no more... Um, and they will be no more when God makes all things new. And then he talks about this will not be accomplished by some gradual post-millennial quote-unquote Christianization of the world, but by the return of Jesus Christ or King Jesus who will destroy all who are not obedient to him. He, he's calling, peop, he's calling uh, those that are reading his letter to call human beings everywhere to repent because uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. So the, the letter is essentially, and I think I've read it, Clearly, it's essentially saying engaging in the political system, seeking to Christianize the world, having some highfalutin post-millennial view that the world is going to be Christianized is a distraction. Politics accomplishes very little. Politicians accomplish very little. And we sort of just need to preach the gospel. And the gospel, uh, as I understand his, his viewpoint, is fundamentally about offering people the chance to repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ and 
and and go to heaven and then wait for God to make all things new. Well, there's uh, there's some truth in that. Um, I'm I'm not a post millennialist. I I have um, I'm a pre millennialist, and I've said that time and time again. I am a pre millennialist. I'm uh, not so much of a dispensationalist. I would probably identify more as a historic premillennialist. But I can sit in a room with my friend Joe Boot, who's a postmillennialist, or Nate Wright, who's a postmillennialist. And I can sit in a room with Mike Thiessen, who's an amillennialist, or Andrew DiBartolo, who's an amillennialist, and we have different eschatological viewpoints. But one thing that unites us all is we actually do believe that in the gospel, we are called to put our faith in Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. We're reading the same Bible. We're called to repent of our sins and trust in Christ. And we do believe that God will make all things new. The post-millennial view is that there's a, a, a gradation of events that will slowly usher in the millennial reign and rule of God in the here and now on this planet. Mm-hmm. That's the post-millennial view. The premillennial view is that God's ideals in creation for mankind to have dominion, for God to rule, for his rightful reign to rule will also be evidenced in this world, much like the post-millennialists would believe. But that prior to the, the, the catalytic event that will bring that in is the second coming of Christ. And, and that's necessary to deal with the depravity of man and to judge evil and to, to make um, uh, Christ's rule more evident. The all-millennial view is obviously more of a spiritualized view of the kingdom. In our church, we don't mandate a particular viewpoint. I, I refuse to trash talk dispensationalists. I refuse to trash talk amillennialists or postmillennialists. And frankly, I refuse to be dogmatic uh, to the point of death in my own eschatological timeline because I've done enough reading on this subject and spent enough time thinking about it that when a man stands up and says, this is absolutely the view, this is the one that's accurate, uh, it makes me cringe a little bit. There's a lot of nuances to eschatology. We have to exercise some hermeneutical humility in this regard. So I don't think it's appropriate in this letter to, to first of all, assume that those that are pushing back are post-mills, uh, nor do I think it's appropriate to denigrate post-millennialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what concerns me the most about this is this this concern that he seems to have about Christianizing the world. That's that's a fascinating claim. First of all, we live in the West. Toronto Baptist Seminary is located in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, as part of the West of Western culture, previously known as Christendom. The fact that they have the freedom to have a seminary is apart from the sovereignty of God as a result of the Christianization of our culture in the past. Mm -hmm. The fact that he has the freedom to write this letter is as a result of the fights that past generations of Christians have fought. I understand that God is behind and above and around all of this, and he is working out a sovereign plan, and we attribute it ultimately to the plan of God. But in the here and now, God has also used human agents Mm -hmm. and churches and preachers and politicians like William Wilberforce to bring an end to slavery in England. And to he has used Christian people to advocate for public access to medical treatment, 
for the end to abortion and on and on and on and on. I find it incredibly naive to think that the Christianization of the world, which in fact we've benefited from on many levels, which is now in steep decline, is somehow a problem or an antithesis to the gospel. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, is that it seems to me that many folks buy into the myth of secularism, spiritual neutrality. Okay, so the bottom line is this, and we've said this over and over again. I don't, it's difficult for me to understand why people can't wrap their mind around this. Yes, we want people to get saved, be born again, and be ushered into the eternal kingdom of God. Yes, I get it. Whether you think that's going to, what, whatever your eschatological timeline is attached to that, fine. Let's put that aside for a moment. The, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of God is the propitiatory sacrifice for our sin. Of course, that's critical. Speaking at a protest is not the antithesis of that. Mm -hmm. Advocating for honesty in the public realm is not the antithesis of that. Advocating for God-given, not state-assigned, but God-given freedoms is not the antithesis of that. Yep. These are things that, that past generations of Christians have, have blessed us with because they have leveraged and engaged with the political apparatus in order to bring about lasting change. Mr. Wallam needs to understand politics is not spiritually neutral. The state, in terms of many of their political decisions, are actually guilty of making religious decisions. In fact, maybe guilty is not the right word because inevitably the decisions you make about how to govern people or what's right or wrong in terms of law or public policy almost always have has moral connotations to it. So am I a Christian nationalist? Yes, I am a Christian nationalist. I am a Christian nationalist. And I've done podcasts on this in the past. What do I mean by that? Uh, very simple. For, forget about what you think Christian nationalism means. Here's what it means for me. Every state, every culture is governed by some moral authority. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to be governed by atheism. I don't want it to be governed by neo-paganism. I don't want it to be governed by Islam. I don't want it to be governed by Judaism. God is our creator. God is the one that establishes and defines what's right and wrong, not just in the church, mm -hmm. not just in terms of Christian behavior, but God defines what's right and wrong. And he actually puts authority structures in place to flesh that out and work it out in human institutions, in human culture, like Romans 13 teaches, that the, the job of the fundamental job of the state is to wield the sword over public justice. So because every state is spirit, a spiritually charged state, and when we allow neo-pagan ideals or Islamic ideals or Wiccan ideals or whatever other non-Christian ideals to govern, it affects people's lives. Listen, my opponents need to listen to this. It affects people's lives. Like, folks, babies die. Okay, children are pulled apart in the womb when God's laws are not recognized as it pertains to abortion. Mm -hmm. People are enslaved when God's laws are not recognized when it comes to slavery. Mm -hmm. People lose businesses. They starve to death when God's economic plans are not recognized in economics. It's so fundamentally clear, like get out of your churches, get out of your seminaries, step out of your libraries, and live in the real world for a couple of days. When God's laws are denied in mm -hmm. a nation, people 
suffer. People die. People's lives fall apart. Babies are butchered in the womb. Old people are put to death. And so it's it's patently wrong to suggest that the gospel is simply about giving people fire insurance, getting them to heaven. Mm-hmm. It, it is in part that, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is predicated upon the foundation of Christ's kingship now, his rule now. By the way, which I think all eschatologies recognize on some level, except for maybe classical dispensationalism, depending on the stripe. But progressive dispensationalism, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, they, we all in theory say, no, Christ is king now. Otherwise, what are we doing praying the Lord's Prayer? Is that just an eschatological prayer? The rest of it's not eschatological per se. So when we pray that the Lord's will would be done in, on, earth, um, on earth as it is in heaven, that's not, well, what I mean by that is in thousands of years from now. That's in the here and now. So I want to challenge this notion that somehow the, the gospel is just about a future. And in the meanwhile, we've sort of got to sit back and take it and be punished and be persecuted and somehow not attending the protests when people have been have lost their houses and jobs and you look around you and people are apostatizing from the Christian faith, that somehow it's more spiritual to stay within your seminary and just meditate and pray and think about God's future plans. Now, we are called as Jesus often did, to engage in in the the corrupt political apparatuses of the day. The the Pharisees, we understand, were religious leaders, but they were also political leaders. They they had power over over society, over structures, over life, over people's ability to work or not work, et cetera. And Jesus confronted them. He, He even refused to answer some questions leading up to his persecution because he knew they were ridiculous. He sort of side-skirted them. He just, and that could have been viewed as disrespectful. But Jesus did that sort of thing. So in theory, we all believe on both sides of this debate, we all believe in theory in the lordship of Jesus Christ over creation. But in practice, some of us are more concerned about its its increasing denial by the secular state and all the destruction that that comes about as a result of that. Frankly, if a person believes that the gospel is simply about getting to heaven, that's a very selfish gospel. It's a very selfish gospel. The gospel that we preach is about repentance and submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ right now and into the future. And there will come a day when the lordship of Jesus Christ will be recognized by all and the kingdom of God will be manifested to all and all will bow the knee and all will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in the here and now, we want to engage with the lies and we want to engage with the political systems because they're not spiritually neutral. They are Secularism and the current Canadian state is a pagan religious institution and it didn't used to be that. And we want to we want to bring about the necessary reform to protect life and to remind people that Christ is not just Lord of your church, He's not just Lord of your seminary or your Christian Christian think tank, but He is Lord of all. Period. 
Would it be fair to say, I think in the letter here, he mentions an analogy of, you know, ours is not to arrange and rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic, so to speak, right? The idea that the, the Titanic is sinking, don't get involved in neutral, unimportant matters. And so what we're saying is, no, these matters are important and important in part because they allow us to speak the gospel truthfully to people. So it'd be like the equivalent of, you know, on the Titanic, plugging in the sound system so you could warn people, right? There is things that they have spiritual significance. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I want to be careful now not to presume to understand more than what is written, but I'll speak to that point more generally, notwithstanding this letter. Um, I was raised in a tradition that essentially taught me just help people to get to heaven and just let the world go to hell in a handbasket. And don't impose Christian values or virtues on people because that's going to obscure the gospel. It's going to make them think that the gospel is by works or somehow if we fix the world that we're going to bring heaven to earth or and we're going to distract people from the reality of their own depravity or whatnot. And it sounds right. It sounds kind of spiritual on the surface. Yeah, you know, this world is not my home. I'm, I'm just a passing through. But it's as you, as you study scripture, you realize that's just, that's just not taught in scripture. Go go back to the opening chapters of the Bible where there's there's a cultural mandate. I, I, I prefer to call it like a cultural kingdom mandate. There's a cultural kingdom mandate there. God's intention and ideal is for man to be a a vice regent to have dominion over the earth and to to project then the values and the goodness of God over all of creation on this physical planet. And then of course we have sin entering into the world and corrupting that and the world being subject to sin and then God working out his this very long-term um, redemptive plan which is which culminates in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus, of course, you know, did teach about the need for e eternal life, and you know, Jesus' ministry was extended through the apostles, and we're, we're we're told about sin and the need to repent, to be born again, and resurrection hope, and our heavenly home, and all of that. But at the same time, you do see within Jesus' ministry uh, an astute interest in the here and now. And the acknowledgement of people and, uh, uh, about his kingship. Mm -hmm. So, when we look at Jesus' ministry, it's interesting. He's he's healing the blind. He's making the lame to walk. And a lot of people would read, he's feeding the the, the three thousand, the five thousand. A lot of people would read that and say, "Oh, those are just those are just cool things he did to authenticate his his lordship." I think that's a very shallow reading of those texts. He is doing that in part. They do serve a purpose to authenticate his lordship. But they also serve to help us to understand what kingdom values look like, what God's ultimate ideals were and will one day be, and again, I believe on this planet during the millennial reign, what they will be in the here and now, that God's original ideal was not disease and destruction and divorce and death and all these nasty things that we struggle with, but it was eternal life and uh, wholeness and uh, a, a pain-free environment and all those things we look forward to in, in the eternal kingdom. And we're getting these little snippets and in this very broken, very dark world, we're getting some 
little windows built for us into the heart of God, and we're seeing God's love for those that uh, are struggling with a physical ailment. It's interesting that not everyone that Jesus healed was, quote-unquote, born again, best as we can tell. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he'd, he'd fix them physically, and he'd tell them to do something, You know, give them sort of a spiritual test. They don't tell people, and they go tell anybody anyway, and you never hear from them again. So presumably these people were not as what we would call born again or saved, but there's something bl- blessed about that. But I, I'm thinking more philosophically, I think, mm-hmm. when I argue that in a world like ours, in a physical world, we're confronted with like certain realities, whether you like it or not. As physical beings, we have to concern ourselves about being properly heated or cooled. So we have furnaces and air conditioners. It's not, we, just, we don't just sit in our homes and pray that God would make the room warm or make the room colder. We're physical beings. We don't mm-hmm. deny that. We always will be physical beings, even in the new heavens and new earth. Our, we'll be, our bodies will be perfected, but physicality is part of our identity. Mm-hmm. And so we concerned ourselves with physical things. We concerned ourselves with heat. We don't say, well, God is sovereign over all things. You know, If he wants to heat us up in the winter, he can and cool us off. In the summer, he can. We don't say, we, we pray that the Lord would provide our food, but we also go out and we you know, garden and we, we butcher animals and we grow things in greenhouses and we do all of that. We don't just take this super spiritual approach that says, well, God will just provide because after all, we, we pray for our daily bread and the Lord's prayer, so he'll just provide and hopefully there's a bag of groceries on my steps in the morning. Sometimes that happens because people are benevolent and supply. No, we, we, we take responsibility. Mm-hmm. We take responsibility for our finances. If we don't work, we don't have money. Is it possible there might be exceptions to the rule and someone might inherit us a lot of money? Yeah, but as a general rule, if you want money, you gotta go work for it. So in the same way, in the same way that we acknowledge the need to deal with temperature issues or to deal with food supply or to nurture our physical bodies, we live in a social construct, in a physical world And when the physical world, the political world, the social structures around us are broken, people die, people suffer, people are, uh, people's lives are destroyed. And many of the things that statism has done over the past couple of years is to actually remove rights and liberties that God himself has bestowed upon us. So whether you like it or not, or whether you've thought about this or not, the state doesn't have authority over my health. I have bodily autonomy under God as a steward of, of this body that he's given to me. It just doesn't. I know in our country we're used to that. It just doesn't. Mm-hmm. The state doesn't have authority over someone's ability to work or not. Sorry, you can claim it, but you just don't have it. That's a God-given right. It's it's founded in the creation mandate itself. You know, we work six days and rest on the seventh. The state doesn't have the, the authority to overturn that. But this mindset that we're seeing reflected in this letter is essentially projecting to the state. It's granting them, whether the author knows it or not, authority to kind of do whatever they want and then it's calling Christians to kind of sit down and shut up. And if you happen to stick your hand up yep. and you you protest, well, then you're guilty of all of these, you know, nasty um, allegations, sinful allegations is what they are. He's actually accusing men like myself or Jacob Rayum or, or others that have stood up. He's actually accusing us of sinful behavior. That's a pretty serious allegation. I'm not prepared to do that with him because I've never had a personal conversation with him about these things. But in terms of what he's written here, uh, that needs to be apologized for forthwith. Uh, there's there's no benefit or um, 
there, there's no win-win for him to maintain those allegations. And then just on a more objective level, I would encourage him and others like him to maybe rethink this false dichotomy between, you know, the, the gospel of getting to heaven and, you know, life in the here and now. And there's much more that can be said about that. Yeah. Well, let's turn to our uh, second document. So we know that many churches have written documents explaining why we should submit to the mandates as per Romans 13. Um, and so maybe you want to take us to the next one. Sure. Well, this one, I'm not going to like name the source because it's just, I've just grabbed one of many. We've, and it's not like a, there's no, nothing personal about it. Um, but again, fundamental to this debate, to these two sides, the sort of the, the pro-compliance and the anti-conformist sides, if you want to call them that. The pro-compliance side has time and time again referenced Romans 13 as sort of a proof text, verses 1 to 7. And one church uh, published on their website, and this is, this is just one of many, that it's an imperative for commanded to be subject to and to submit to civil uh governing authorities. And then there's this, this argument that's often presented that, you know, Paul wrote this in a tyrannical regime and in great times of trial and Christians were about to be thrown to the lions and on and on and on. So it's an imperative, we're called to submit. And therefore what he must be suggesting is we're called to submit to persecution and we're, you know, we're called to submit to what we would call statism. And we're called to submit, you know, regardless of what the state does, unless they tell us specifically that we can't preach the gospel. And by the way, in that declaration is also that reductionistic notion that the gospel is simply about getting to heaven, right? So one could actually argue if they have a full understanding of the gospel, anytime an authority commands you through word or action not to preach the lordship of Christ over all of life, that that is in essence a command to deny the gospel. So. I would just say straight up, because my view of the gospel is is broader. Mm -hmm. My view of the gospel includes that call to repent and be born again and put your faith in Jesus Christ, but the gospel is also about the fundamental declaration of Christ's lordship over everything, that he spoke the world into existence, he maintains the world through the power of his word, he is the eternal logos, he is your king, you have to submit to him. And if you don't, you're going to be judged for it. So his, the fact that the fact that an unbeliever is called to submit to the kingship of Christ, the lordship of Christ, in the act of repentance, is predicated upon the fundamental notion that Christ is that person's king. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're. It's kind of weird to ask someone to surrender themselves to someone that has no authority over them. And it's like, oh, does this does his authority over you start just after you've repented and been born again? No, your God's authority over you starts at your conception, and so you you have a, um, a a responsibility to submit yourself to the authority of God from theoretically from conception onward. Now, are you capable of doing that apart from the regenerative work of Christ? No at least not holistically, and it's certainly not with the right motive, but that's still part of the damning reality of God's authority over your life, which if you reject will result in your eternal damnation. So it's interesting that you have to actually have a reductionistic 
view of the gospel to make the claim that the only time we resist the government is when they command us uh, not to preach the gospel. Well, they did command us not to preach the gospel when they decided to exercise authority over the church. That act in and of itself, whether they know it or not, no matter what the motive is, is a claim over the church to say they have authority over the ministry and worship of the Christian church. And those that have a, a broad biblical, I would argue, understanding of the gospel would say, no, in that act, in that act of saying we have authority over the ministry and worship of the church is a false gospel. So the gospel is broader than just the call to repent and believe. Now, to this point of being subject to, nobody is arguing, no one in the nonconformist camp or the compliance camp that that's not an imperative. We believe that. We're not, we didn't tear Romans 13 out of our Bible and throw it away. Mm -hmm. We do believe that it says be, let everyone, that's inclusive of everyone, let every person be subject to governing authorities. We agree with that. But read on in the context of this passage. The, the, the particular church website that I um, was looking at talks about the, supreme, the sovereignty of God, that it you know, exists. It's, it's, all these institutions are instituted by God, that um, there's a warning there that if you resist civil authority, you'll incur judgment. I get it. I've read it. I've read it over and over and over again, mm-hmm. forward and backwards, I think, in Greek and in English. But look at the text. Let's just look at it again. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I think it's because the lie has been told so many times that Romans 13 is a call to absolute submission to the state, except when they ask you not to preach the core of the gospel. Because that's been told so many times, and it's a patently false interpretation of the text, we have to address it time and time again. It talks about them there being no authority apart from God. Okay, we all get that. They've been instituted by God. We get that. Whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. We get that. Those who resist will incur judgment. We get that. But then look at look what it says here. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So just think about what that means for a moment. And and maybe one helpful exercise would be to say, hmm, well, what if they are a terror to good conduct? Does that then affect the way I just read the past couple of verses? And I think it does. Because it goes on to say, who would have to, who would, uh, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Okay, so just pause there for a moment. What is that person in authority? Read backwards. A person that's not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Then do what is good. So who defines what's good? Mm -hmm. God, not the state, Mm -hmm. right? So God defines what good and bad is. That's inclusive of government policies, government laws. You you can't have, if you allow the the state to define what's good, you're actually deifying the state. That's right. You may not mean that, but you're deifying the state. So we're not going to deify the state. And you will receive his approval. What is the basis of his approval? The basis of his approval is goodness. Who defines what goodness is? God. That's why a ruler properly functioning is not a terror to good conduct. For he is God's servant for your good. Notice it says he's he's God's servant. He's God's deacon. He's, he's under the authority of God. He's not over the authority of God. If you're God's servant, then you don't have authority over God. You don't have a third authority besides beside God. You are under God. 
and he is God's servant for your good. Again, who defines what good is? Not the state, but God defines what good what mm-hmm. what's good is because God's not going to ask a ruler to be his deacon to go slaughter people and say, "Hey, man, that's a good thing to do." Right. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So that's the concept of punishment. And wrongdoing, of course, needs to be defined by God's laws. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, which is going to be doled out by a properly appointed ruler Mm -hmm. who is God's deacon, who's doing good, the God who defines good, but also for the sake of conscience. So this whole idea here that all we need to do is read the first few words, we're we're to be subject to authority without looking at the context and then arriving at some misguided conclusion that because it's an imperative, that means that whatever that ruler does, we must submit to that ruler, even if they're asking you to jump off a bridge or keep your church closed permanently or turn your kids over to be educated by the state, that somehow that's a redemptive, beautiful, loving, necessary thing to do. Frankly, it's false teaching. It's false teaching. It it results in a church that knowingly or more likely than not unknowingly places the government in a place of absolute authority over ministry, life, marriage, everything except for the essence of the gospel they have authority over. Where is that taught in scripture? Nowhere. It's not taught in scripture anywhere. I, I'm a husband. I have authority over my my wife that the state has no ability or authority to interfere in. I have a, I'm a father. I have authority yeah. over my children pre pre adulthood yeah. that the state doesn't. I have authority directly given by God. The state ha, uh, over my church. The state has authority. We all live in these different spheres of authority. This, this is an absolutist view of Romans 13. This is a failure to acknowledge what we would call sphere sovereignty, which is that God has appointed various levels of authority and different, not even levels, various spheres of authority in different aspects of life to oversee um, uh, you know, areas that are of concern to God. Um, so not only uh, is the state... So if if the state if we if we took Romans 13 to mean that the state has absolute authority over every aspect of life except for the preaching of the gospel they violated that time and time and time again. Mm-hmm. Unless you have a very reductionistic view of the gospel which is just about getting to heaven. But secondly the the passage doesn't teach the absolute authority over the state. So when it tells everyone every person to submit imperative to the state, it is in within a limited set of boundaries. And those boundaries are when the state, who must understand what goodness is in order to even adjudicate or rule or create policies or legislate, when the state com- uh, functions in a, in a way that is honorable to the Lord, we are required to submit. But if the state tells me and I just want to relieve the pressure on Christians that may feel guilty. When the state tells me that I, I'm not allowed to work, I can kindly tell the state to buzz off. Mm-hmm. When the state says, hey, you must close your church because there's a global pandemic and we have bodies stacked like cordwood in the street, I can say, well, you know what? 
Um, thanks for the information. The elders and I are going to convene. We're going to make some wise decisions on behalf of our people. And we might even arrive at the same conclusions that you arrived at. Likely not, but we might. But we're not going to do it because you told us to do it. Mm -hmm. Because we are Christ's embassy, and you do not have authority over the gathered church. And that's essentially what we've told the church or the state. And unfortunately, other churches have told the state something different. And the majority of them have told by their actions or words the state something different. So some of us have been penalized for that. Mm -hmm. And in that respect, back to Mr. Wellam's letter, we have actually been persecuted. <laughs> we have actually suffered yeah. for uh, the cause of uh, standing for our uh, theological and our conscience convictions. Mm -hmm. Well, it's helpful. I think there's one more um, statement we wanted to look at, the statement of the media source. This is a recent article that was just published in the, uh, I think it was the, the, C oh, the Canadian press. Ontario's top doc weighs bad upcoming flu season in decision on mask recommendations. What do you have to say about this one? <laughs> yeah. Well, please don't take this as a, an arrogant declaration. Okay, please don't take it that way. But I'm starting to feel a little prophetic. Yeah, just a little. <laughs> because, and, and, and I say that tongue in cheek, because this is the kind of thing that we softly predicted. That we said this might be, when I say predicted, not categorically, but yeah. sort of tongue in cheek. But we, this is the kind of thing that has concerned me from the, pretty much from close to the beginning of all of this, that what we've permitted the state to do is to set patterns up. So if we, it's like the, the famous income tax thing, right? When income tax came out, which is super weird to actually tax your earnings. It's, it's a weird concept. But when income tax came out, it was supposed to be a temporary measure in our country. And it's still here. Yeah. And some people I think are taxed upwards of 45 or 50% or some crazy number of their, their income. And then with their leftovers, they, they still get taxed at the cash register for the things they buy. And on top of that, they have municipal taxes to pay and so forth and so on. And uh, you know, there's there's been this statement floating around for many years that I think is largely true, and that there's there's nothing temporary when it comes to you know government policies. Once once they feel they can do it, they just do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, when that money is flowing in, it's hard to give up, right? And and the state has an incredible amount of money, incredible amount of money, even with the cultural shift from primarily men working and women being homemakers to women working. Now they have a whole new workforce in, in recent generations. They have the majority of men and the majority of women are also working outside the home, which just creates an absolute upswing in, in the opportunity to collect taxes. So the, the state has an incredible amount of money. But what we know is that state programs and state ideas are very, very expensive. I think someone told me recently like 11 or 12% of people just in our own province work for the state. And uh, someone else was saying, I think on a federal level, there's something like 1,200 judges in the judicial branch of our government and uh, 400 and some odd people in the legislative branch of our government, but in the executive branch of our government with all the technocrats, it's something like 650,000 people. Whoa. We're supposed to have this balanced government, but it's just unbelievable how big the state has become. Yeah. And taxation is part of that. So I had this notion that early on, if 
if we just sort of mindlessly surrender to, let's say, mask mandates. And by the way, just just for the record, um, our opponents love to call people like myself anti-maskers, like you're anti-maskers or anti-science or anti-vax. Not really. That's not really the issue. I I'm I'm opposed to masks more, not so much because I want to have these ongoing conversations about you know, do masks work or don't they work or to what degree, but because I can just see objectively so much politics in that, so much manipulation, so much butt covering in this where the early on we were told masks weren't necessary. Why were we told that? Because they needed them in hospitals, the N95s, and then they started pumping out masks and the prices dropped and you could buy them for next to nothing. And it looks good. It looks good to have a mask on. I've and and we we know the stories. Like it's objective. The the way math. There's no there's mask mandates, but there's no there's no checks and balances as to how those masks are worn, what they're made out of. Mm-hmm. There's no logic to where and when they should be worn. We we have multiple accounts of people wearing them alone in their car. I've seen people wearing masks with like a three quarter inch, like stretched out old. Um, fabric masks, was like a half to three quarter inch gap all the way around the outside. Masks that people pull off the floor of their car or, you know, breathe into and put all this wet, you know, moisture in it and then stuff them in their pockets and pull it out again. Nobody's giving anybody advice on that. I've never heard one, one politician say, hey, make sure the mask fits well, or it's N95 quality, or it's not made out of an old sock, or it wasn't left on your toilet seat at home or thrown in your sock drawer or on and on and on. It's just get that mask on. Regard, Just get the mask on. It looks good. It, like it looks like we're doing our job. It makes people feel more comfortable. We have populations within our, our society where there is zero deaths, like healthy, young children, certain age groups with no comorbidities. Nobody dies in those categories for the most part. We still throw masks on because it looks good. It looks like we're doing our job. It makes other people feel good. And if you don't see that, frankly, you're, you're just an ignorant, ignorant, ignorant person. Like it's so obvious. So the state though continues to do this and people are like, well, they say Romans 13, we, we got to put our masks back on. And there was a church in our own province that I heard from some of their parishioners that left, where if you attended Christian worship, they, they love Romans 13, but they're not reading Romans 14 about matters of conscience. You attend Christian worship and you're like, conscientiously, I, I do not want to wear a mask. I believe it symbolizes ABC. I don't want to be part of that. I don't need it. I'm exercising bodily autonomy, whatever your argument might be. You will wear a mask or you'll be put under church discipline. So isn't that fascinating? Mm-hmm. So now you have the same elders that are saying the state has absolute authority over the church, then claiming authority that they don't have over their parishioners Mm -hmm. to mask up because there's no place in the Bible that says that an elder has authority to decide whether you wear a mask to church or not, but somehow they're claiming that authority. So we got statism, I guess that'd be called like elderism, right? Where the elders now become tyrants trying to enforce things upon their congregants that in good conscience, they don't want to participate in. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem. So anyway, we, we, um, uh, we've tied this into climate change and sort of rambling on here a little bit, but the, all the arguments that apply to COVID-19 also apply to climate change. 
uh, it's a public health emergency, uh, the government knows best, trust the science, on and on and on. And now we have surprise, surprise. So we went through 2020, 2021, now 2022, 2023 season, and all indicators are that we need to get our masks back on. And what's the argument now? It's no longer so much about loving your neighbor, it's about, well, our hospitals are backed up. Okay, yep. well, this is the problem with status medicine. It sounded like a great idea to have social medicine maybe back in the 1960s or whatnot. It's a terrible idea. It's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly insufficient. The state will not relinquish it though because they want authority yep. over you. They want authority over medicine. And many of us, especially that grew up in Canada, think that's normal. It's not normal. Mm -hmm. It's not normal for human beings to be provided free, quote unquote, free medicine, which is actually just funded by taxpayers, by the state. And some might say, you're stepping out of your lane here. Well, no, because I'm dealing with sort of a justice authority issue. It's like, why are pastors talking about medical decisions? Because it's, again, it's an authority issue. Yeah. We have authority over our bodily choices. That doesn't apply to some woman that wants to abort her child. That's a different body you, you're carrying around. You have a stewardship to make sure that that child survives as best as you can. But my, I, I don't, I'm accountable to God for my bodily choices. And now we've been told time and time again, just get the vaccine, right? How many times do we hear that? Get the vaccine, get the vaccine, get the vaccine. The statistics really aren't that much different between vax and unvax. I look at them in our hospital and at our one of our hospitals today, I just looked this up before I came in. There's um, 31 cases of people in the hospital confirmed with COVID-19 who are vaccinated and three who aren't, right? So kind of like 10 to one, which is kind of like the vaccination rates from what I understand. Those that are being treated at 17 to three, those in ICU, it's two to one which actually is unusual because it's usually three to one or uh, you know four to zero or whatever. But the point is, is all a lot of people have gone out and they've got the vaccine, okay? And that's your choice, get the vaccine, get the vaccine. But um, now the evidence is pretty solid that it doesn't stop the spread. And you were told that. Yep. So now that's been proven to be a lie. And it doesn't stop you from getting sick from COVID-19. So- we were told that at the beginning, and that's a lie. And why why are more Christians not concerned about that? Mm -hmm. When some pastors even publicly advocated uh, to get the get the shot, some of them, you know, got the shot and then got sick. Uh, I heard of one fellow got the shot and he was dead a little while later. Another guy got the shot and he stroked out. I don't know what the reasons for all of that are but it kind of raises some yellow, if not red flags. Like, are we not concerned about this? Shouldn't we do an inquiry here? Oh no, just get the shot. It's the right thing to do. It's such foolishness. I don't, I, I have never said get the shot or don't get the shot. Publicly, I think everybody knows I didn't get the shot because I tried to cross in the US and they turned me back. Yeah. And I've, 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 I've told people that publicly and people are like, well, why didn't you get the shot? Well. To be honest with you, I consulted two physicians off the record and they said I didn't need it. And I had COVID and I survived. And now I'm looking around at people saying, well, you got the shot and you still got sick. So like what, what compelling reason would there be for me to get it? But if for some reason you looked at things from a different angle and you got the shot, I'm not judging you. Mm -hmm. If you got it against your conscience, you have a big problem. 
but I'm not judging you. But now we have all this information. And instead of saying, oh, the vaccine's the cure, now the argument has shifted and it's a medical, it's, a, it's, it's an issue with uh, an ins insufficient infrastructure in the, the, in the medical world, even though you're taxing us through the nose and you still can't provide A plus medicine. Even though there's, even under COVID-19, there was wings of our hospital that were all kinds of vacant beds, but we're still being told to lock down, stay home, stay safe. Even though they laid off and fired yep. physicians, licensed physicians and uh, PSWs and um, registered nurse practitioners and registered nurses and, and on and on and on, they fired these people and refuse to hire them back, but they're telling us that the hospitals are closed. It's it's maddening nonsense. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you this, again, to maybe speak a little bit prophetically, and again, I say that tongue in cheeks, but if we continue to comply to this, we do it just because the government tells us to do it. It will never end, folks. Mm -hmm. It'll never end. It'll just keep building and building and building and building. So people need the, – the time's up. The time for um, com ongoing compliance is, is, uh, is done. Uh, we've, we've been asked to, to do things uh, against our conscience time and time again, and we just can't do it. And if, if we're not courageous enough to stand up and say, you know what? If I want to wear a mask, I'll wear a mask of my own accord. If I want to get a vaccine or a medical treatment, I'll get it of my own accord. I'm not going to do it because you're you have a marketing campaign that's pressuring me to do it, or my pastor's telling me that if I don't do it, I can't attend Christian worship or whatever. I'm not going to do that. If we don't take a stand now, if we don't draw a line in the sand, if we continue this sort of two kingdoms mindset that says you know the, the kingdom of God is all exclusively future, or there's just a spiritual kingdom, or we're just sort of riding it out until Jesus comes back and on and on. on. We're, we're getting ourselves into a boatload of trouble. So those are those are my thoughts on that matter. And and hopefully they're they're of interest and they bless people. And and I want my words to um you know be a blessing to people, but I also want people to to be encouraged, to be to increase in their courage and their convictions on these matters so they can fight the good flight fight. We want God to ultimately be glorified. For the record, I couldn't care less about public applause. I would be quite content to fade into the woodwork. I often try to avoid it. I, I try to avoid um, you know, the, the public being in the limelight. It's, it's kind of uncomfortable. Frankly, it's massively anticlimactic if you're a younger pastor, minister, and you're you're you want to be in the limelight. Dude, I'm going to tell you straight up: it's massively anticlimactic. Ultimately, our identity is in Christ, and that includes the lordship of Christ over our lives and over our churches. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Aaron, and thank you to each of our listeners today for taking the time to think through these uh, these issues and to listen to it and engage with it. If you've enjoyed this show, please consider helping us reach more listeners, and you can do that by sharing this episode or rating the podcast as a whole. Leadership Now is aired two times weekly on the CJXC radio, and it's available on demand from the Fight, Laugh, Feast app as well as Aaron's personal blog, pursuitofglory.org. We hope you tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.